Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, friends. Welcome to church. Good morning. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together.
Father, we want to thank you for who you are and for all that you've done for us. And we come today to worship you and to adore you. For you are the great God and you have done great things. Thank you for being present with us. Thank you for being at work in our lives. And we pray that you'd be glorified in our worship today. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Let me invite you to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. It's great to see you as we gather for worship today. Let me uh, be, if not the first, uh, one of the people to uh, wish those of you to whom it's appropriate, Happy Mother's Day. And uh, we pray that this is a wonderful day for you and hopefully an opportunity for you to spend some time with family and to connect together on this uh, day that we celebrate uh, the gift of mothers. You'll notice that next Sunday we begin our adjusted worship schedule. Uh, we will uh, be the service will start at eight thirty next week, and that'll continue through the end of June. And uh, we will not have a nine forty service. And there's a there's a little calendar type thing on the back of the bulletin that just gives you the breakdown of the uh, worship schedule from now uh, on through the summer. We have the privilege this morning of uh, hearing from our children, and Lori Smalley, who is uh, our children's pastor, is going to be sharing a little bit, and they're going to be singing as well. Good morning, and happy Mother's Day to everyone who has a mother. I guess that's everybody. (laughs) I wanted to start off this morning by just saying I'm so grateful for the privilege that I have of, of being here and working with the wonderful children and and then sending them home with you afterwards. <laughs> but I truly love my job, and I am so thankful for the wonderful people I get to work with, all the volunteers that bless our children, our amazing Sunday school superintendents, and our junior church leaders, and our children's church teachers, and our kids' club leaders, and our nursery helpers, and our valley preschool staff, and our church librarians, and the Sunday school teachers, and I could go on. There's so many helpers and volunteers, and I just thought it would be a nice thing if everyone who volunteers in some capacity in our children's ministry program would just stand up so we can give you a thank you this morning. I am very, very thankful for you. We are going to hear from our first through fifth grade Sunday school children this morning. Each week, they learn a scripture verse through wonderful songs that Jan Schilke teaches them. And this morning, they're going to be singing a verse from Psalm 46. So I want to say also thank you for those of you who pray for our children. I know that there are people out there that pray every day for our children while they're in 
in their classes and, and on Wednesday nights as well. And our Sunday school program has over 30 wonderful dedicated teachers. And I think that's pretty impressive. And there's always ways you can join the team, too. Please consider praying for us weekly. And if you would like to volunteer in a different way as well, please contact me. We can always use more help. So I want to thank Jan this morning for the work she does with our kids and invite the children to come and sing for us. to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
Father, it is an awesome thing to ponder your love for us. We know deep in our hearts how undeserving we are of love. How often we fall short of what we desire for ourselves, much less what you desire. And yet we are here today because you keep reaching out to us, loving us, Caring for us. We just want to say thank you. And we want to open our hearts to you and experience the depths of your love for us. Father, we know your love for us, not only in what you've done in the past but what you continue to do and promise to do in the present and the future. That's why we keep bringing our concerns and our burdens to you because we know you care. We know you're at work. And so today we come once again. Father, we want to thank you and, and ask for your grace upon this church. We thank you for the children that we just saw here in front of us. And we are so grateful. We feel so blessed. And we pray that you would help us as we nurture our children in the faith. And and to know you and to know your love for them. Give us grace to be agents of your love. We thank you for churches around us and for all the good work that that is being done. And and today we especially pray for St. Paul's Lutheran Church and Angelica and Pastor Hoyt. May this gathering of believers know your grace and mercy upon them as they serve you and each other and their community and beyond. Father, we thank you for your work in this world. We thank you that you're at work in places and in people where there are tragedies and disasters. 
We think especially continue to pray for the people in Hawaii with the volcano, the continued recovery in Puerto Rico and other places of our nation and the world. We ask, Father, that you would work miraculously and that you would help us as your people to be agents of hope in difficult circumstances. We pray for refugees around the world who struggle to find a place to to find security and home. We ask that you would answer those prayers. We pray for places where war and violence are just everyday life and ask that you would bring peace. We pray for all who are in those places who are agents of peace. And we ask that you would help them and protect them. We pray, Father, for your church around the world. And today we think especially of your church in Egypt. We, we thank you for the Wesleyan Church in Egypt that uh, is uh, 98 years old. And our connections to the church with uh, Pastor Sidham, who is uh, here in Houghton and worshiping this weekend. And we pray, Father, that you will continue to bless him as he leads the church there in very difficult circumstances. And as this week begins Ramadan, we pray that Christians would shine their light and the love of Christ in Egypt and other places of the world. That we would bear witness to who you are. Father, we thank you for your grace upon us. We pray that you would, you would help all who are grieving. And we think especially of Kathy Wright now and her family, the death of her mother this week. We pray for everyone who is struggling with health concerns. We pray for John Christensen, Leonard Watson, for Florence Tuber and Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty and Tim Nichols, for Bob Brown, Louise Princell, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, for Peter Lingenfelter, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, for Sheldon Emerson and Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our minds today. Bring your healing grace to each of them. And Father, today we want to thank you for the gift of family. We realize that families come in all shapes and sizes. They exist with varying degrees of success and godliness. But we want to thank you for the gift of people who nurtured us and cared for us and loved us. And we recognize that no family is perfect. So we pray that you would help us. Help us to be parents who love our children, who lead our children to Christ in all that we do. Help us to be children who love our parents in the spirit of Christ's love in all that we do. Help us in all of our family connections to know your grace and your mercy. To be people who love and forgive, who show kindness and mercy, who respect and honor one another. And who want what is best for each other. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your grace in each of our lives. We offer ourselves to you in thanksgiving. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Today we have the privilege of hearing the NIV translation of Revelation 22, verses 1 through 6. Following the reading, children may be excused for children's and junior church. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, And his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Please stand as we sing. You unravel me. Thank you. 
Please be seated. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think often we have a very small, puny view of heaven. I think we have, we have been t- believed, we've been told, we have assumed that when we think about heaven, it is far less than how God describes it and what God has promised us. I was reading uh, recently uh, some excerpts from C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Last Battle, which is the final book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. And in that, uh, in that book, he, he tells the story of the children who are making their way into Aslan's country. And uh, while they are excited about moving into Aslan's country, there is also a, a sense of, of lament and, and pain and, and agony because Narnia has been destroyed and gone forever. And, and they, are, they lament Narnia being no more because their lives were changed and transformed. It was there that they met Aslan and encountered Aslan and had just life-changing experiences with him. And as they make their way into Aslan's country, there is this sense of grief that Narnia is no longer part of their lives. And, and in the midst of this conversation... In the midst of their journey, there is this conversation that I want to read for you. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head, and there's the pass into Archenland and, and everything. And yet, they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them. And they look farther away than I remembered. And they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Edensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Caraparaville still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? Aslan told us that we would never see, we would never return to Narnia. And here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, 
When Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground, neighed, and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I didn't know it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. What I love about that description is that it reminds us that what God has in store for us is a lot like we have now, but so much more, so much bigger, so much grander, so much purer. Because in that day, we will understand more and more of who God is and of who we are. I am convinced that one of the greatest difficulties that we wrestle with in this life, one of the reasons we struggle so much as human beings, is because we don't realize who we are. Particularly as followers of Jesus. And Paul says to us, he writes to the Colossians and says, think about heavenly things, not earthly things. Why does he say that? Because when our focus is on earthly things, we get so wrapped up in a false, skewed view of us and him. And what we need is a clearer vision of God and a clearer vision of who God says we are as followers of Jesus. And we get a glimpse of that in the 22nd chapter of Revelation. In this passage we read this morning. And, you know, throughout the book of Revelation, he's been talking about Jesus as Lord. Jesus is the King. And, and we have this huge description. Some of it very difficult to understand. And some of it confusing. And some of it frightening. And some of it exciting. But we go through this whole thing as we read through the book of Revelation, wondering exactly what in the world he's talking about. And then we get to the 22nd chapter. And it begins like this. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, I've read that passage numerous times throughout my life, but it wasn't until recently that I noticed those last words in that last sentence. And they will reign forever and ever. When we enter in to the fullness of the kingdom, when Jesus ushers in the kingdom, we, the children of God, will reign with him. 
I think sometimes we think of our heavenly existence as sort of, we're just sort of hanging out. You know, we're just it's sort of like it is now, but it's not. We're royalty. We're going to reign with Jesus. It's one of the most phenomenal promises in all of Scripture. That you and me have, will be so purified and made holy and transformed that we will reign with Jesus forever and ever because we are sons and daughters of God. Every person who has given their heart in allegiance to Jesus, every person who says, I yearn for Jesus, I need Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want the kingdom of God to be exactly what it is, every person to whom that is your desire will reign with Jesus. We're royalty. We have an inheritance, Paul says, that will not spoil or fade. And we need to grasp that. This was God's intent from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, after he creates humanity, he looks at it and he says to human beings, God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. And govern it. And he says, reign over the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. From the very, very beginning, God created human beings to reign as royalty. Jesus gives us glimpses of this in his teachings. He tells a parable about a, about a master who goes off on a trip. In Luke 19, Matthew 25. And he says, he, he leaves them talents or so, something that they invest. And he says to them, I'm going to be gone. I'll be back. And when he gets back, those who trust him enough, those who believe in him enough, to do, to, to do something with what they've been given and to pledge their allegiance to him as his followers, to them he says, well done. You're a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. You're going to be governor over the cities as your reward. And Matthew has it, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. There is this sense of authority as, as kings and queens in the kingdom of God that Jesus has for us. I think the reason why this is so important is because we need to grasp We need to understand that we have an inheritance that is secure in Jesus Christ. And you and I need to know that because we live our lives so much in our insecurities. You see it the moment our first mother and father rebel against God. What do they do? First of all, they feel shame. They run and hide. And when they're confronted, what's their response? Blame somebody else. I'm not responsible. I don't want to be held accountable. And you could almost say that the history of the world from that moment on is human beings acting out of their insecurities. Why why do we get wrapped up in greed? Because we feel like to be 
have value and worth, we've got to have more. Why is it that that we grasp for power and whatever level it may be? Because something in us says to be secure, to be valuable, to have worth, we have got to control things. Why is it that we manipulate one another in our relationships? Because we don't feel secure in ourselves. Why is it that we lash out at one another? Because we're trying to protect ourselves in the midst of our insecurities. We are walking, we are walking examples of what happens when insecurity eats away at us. And so we have to prove ourselves and we have to, we have to defend ourselves and we have to live our lives in such a way that we somehow convince people that we have worth and value and that we should be loved. Why do we do that? Because we have so many insecurities. And the scriptures keep telling us over and over again that we don't have to be insecure. We have Jesus. We have an inheritance for, that is waiting for us, that is secure. And we are royalty. And when you know that you're royalty, you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You can just be. When we begin to understand who we are in Christ, when we understand the, the inheritance that is ours in Christ, we can serve one another freely. You know, Jesus talks about the kingdom being for, about the principles of the kingdom of those who are first will be last and those last will be first. He says, if you want to enter my kingdom, you have to become like a little child. You have to give yourself away. You serve. Why does he say that? How does in the world does he expect anyone to live like that? Because he wants us to understand that we do that out of our security in Christ. We have an inheritance. We're royalty. We're children of the king. I find it fascinating the number of times in scripture where it says, where it connects suffering and our reward of inheritance in Christ. You see that in in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, if we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. You see it in Philippians chapter 1, for you've been given not only the privilege of trusting Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children were heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't think Paul is necessarily creating a formula here that we say, okay, if I suffer, then I'll be rewarded. I think he's saying to us, You become much more willing to give up your life, to suffer, to surrender, to submit, to give yourself away when you know what is awaiting you. When you know that life is more than just the moment. 
Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven, that, you know, that the significance of our life is not, that, is not just that we, we, this is the only life we have, but actually precisely because it isn't the only life we have. Because there is more. And when we begin to understand who we are and our inheritance in Christ, we can engage ourselves with people. We can give ourselves away. It's who we are in Christ that's the motivation for for telling other people about Jesus, for getting involved in justice and issues of of suffering and pain in our world. It's, It's who we are in Christ that motivates us to care about people who are the least among us. We, we give ourselves away to people who, quite frankly, can give very little, if anything, back to us. Because we know who we are in Jesus. And we know what has been promised to us in Jesus. It's not a coincidence that, that when Isaiah talks about the Messiah, the most common term he uses is the suffering servant. It's not a coincidence that when Jesus sits down with his disciples on that night before he goes to the cross, and John says, his preface is, Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and that he was returning to God, took up a towel and a basin of water and got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet. What in the world would give Jesus the freedom to do that? Because he knows who he is in his Father. And what will give us the freedom to engage ourselves in the suffering of the world, and the pain of the world, and to care about people, people who can't do anything to give back to us? What would cause us, what would motivate us to be the kind of people who give ourselves away like that? Because we know who we are in Christ. And we have an inheritance that cannot fade or spoil It is assured to us in Jesus. And that's our hope. That's the whole motivation for unity in the scriptures. You know, we talk, this is is Mother's Day. And for, for some of you, this might be a day that is just, it's a glorious day for you. It's a wonderful day. For others of you, it might not be such a great day. Maybe the image of maybe your, your relationship with your mother is, it was not good. Or maybe it brings grief and pain and loss to you. Maybe this day is a hard day. And what it reminds us with all these different experiences and emotions about days like this, it reminds us that family can be kind of messy sometimes. Family can be hard. Family can be difficult. And it is no less hard and difficult and messy in the church Why is it that we struggle so much? Because ultimately, we forget who we are in Christ. And so we're grasping for attention and love. We're trying to prove ourselves and, and, and make ourselves look worthy and valuable and important. And all the while, the call of the gospel is to say, know who you are in Christ And love each other and care for each other and and give yourself to each other. And that's how unity 
get started. That's the root of it. That we understand who we are in Jesus Christ. So John writes in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, for those who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. What a phenomenal, phenomenal promise. Fred Craddock is one of my favorite preachers. I lamented when he he died in his 80s a few years ago. I would have walked miles to hear him preach. And I remember hearing him tell a story once about being with his wife on vacation in the Smoky Mountains. It's probably in the mid to late 60s, early 70s, somewhere in that time. He said they were just trying to get away from life and they, they went into a restaurant and they sat down and, and they noticed that there was an older gentleman who was just sort of making his way around all the tables. It was obvious that he probably was the owner or one of the owners of this restaurant. And he came to their table and he said, folks, how are you doing today? And he said, fine. You on vacation? Yeah. You having a good time? Yeah. Well, I, I hope that uh, I hope that you get some rest, and it's a wonderful time for you. I said thank you, and he started to walk away. Then he turned around. And he said, "Oh, by the way," he said, "What do you do?" And Fred Craddock said, "I, I teach in a seminary." His eyes lit up. He said, "Oh, you're a preacher." He's going to tell you a story. He pulled up a chair and he sat down at the table with them. They're like, "We just wanted to eat dinner here, you know." He said, "I, I was raised in these hills." And he said, um, he said, my mother was not married. And he said that there was, he said that the shame that the, that the people had on her, they put on me. He said, I, it was hard at school. He said, I, I would eat by myself and, and I, I hid during recess. As I saw the stairs and the pointing of people in this little town, and I knew what they were thinking. He said, there was a church back there in the hills, Laurel Springs. And he said, that the church, the preacher at that church, big man, black hair, big black beard, piercing eyes, wore a, wore a big coat crackly voice. He said, he frightened me and he fascinated me at the same time. He said, I used to go to that church sometimes and I'd, but I'd always go late and I'd leave early because I didn't want anybody talking to me and saying to me, boy, what's a boy like you doing in church? He said, one Sunday, the people kind of bunched up in the aisle and I couldn't get out like I normally did. And he said, I began to panic. What if somebody says something to me? What if somebody what if somebody talks to me and says things to me? I don't know what to do. And he said, I could just feel the panic rising in me. And, and I, all of a sudden, I felt a hand on my shoulder. And I began to turn, and I saw that black coat. And I looked up, and I saw that black beard. And I saw the face of that preacher. With his hand on my shoulder, he said to me, 
boy, I, I know you. He said, you're a child of... He said, I thought to myself, oh no, what's he going to say? He looked me in the eye and he said, son, he said, you're a child of God. He said, he swatted me on the backside and he said, now go claim your inheritance. And this man sitting at the table said to the Craddocks, he said, I began to live that day. My life was not the same. And Fred Craddock looked at this man, he said, sir, he said, what's your name? He said, Ben Hooper. And Fred Craddock said, I thought my name went around in my mind, Ben Hooper, Ben Hooper. And then it came to me. He said, I remember my father telling me that the people of Tennessee twice elected a governor by the name of Ben Hooper. The Apostle Paul says to us, think about things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you died, your life died, died to this life. And your real life is in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ appears to the whole world, you will reign with him. in Christ or children of God. And the call of the gospel is to claim our inheritance and to live like we believe it. Father, help us to do just that through your grace. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.